Calculus Podcast. Joining me today is Ben Taylor of Backpicks.com and now Nylon Calculus. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks for having me, Kevin. I am I am psyched like Bill Walton at a Grateful Dead concert to dive into things. <laughs> I'm ready to go. That is that is uh, that's putting a lot of pressure on 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 this podcast, but I I hope we can live up to it. No, that's just my level of excitement. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, I'm, I'm excited that you're that excited. <laughs> um, yeah, because Bill Walton had a, at a uh, dead concert. I, I think that's probably <laughs> the, the maximum level of excitement that, a, that human beings are capable of. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so for the people that are, are unfamiliar with, with you, you... Um, it's a few just, people. Yeah. So you, you just started uh, writing for Nylon, but you've been writing about basketball and sort of the statistical side of things on the internet for a while. And um, you also wrote a book called Thinking Basketball, which you can get at Amazon. Um, I, I That's where I got it anyways. It's it's very good. Um, but that's the place to get it. Yeah. So you, you self-publish that, right? Through, through Amazon? Yeah, that's a whole. We could have a whole podcast about the publishing industry, uh, but I ended up I ended up going through that channel, so you, you can get it on Amazon. Yeah, it's it's like I said, it's very good. It's very interesting. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit more later on, but um, that's just another example of sort of your your background and credentials. So I wanted to shout that out early, and uh, we'll sh- shout it out also often. <laughs> I, don't, I don't I don't want to date myself. <laughs> but my my first published piece on the internet was in 2002. Oh boy! Yeah, yeah I did a, a I did time. I did a breakdown for a website. Um, it was a Duke Boston College basketball game, and all I remember is the whole emphasis of the piece was stopping Carlos Boozer. That's how long ago it was. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that. I, I think I think sometimes I feel like I've been uh, writing randomly on the internet for a long time because uh, not even under my own name, but like like you, I was uh, you know you used to post I think on Real GM uh, as uh, was it Real GM that you used to post under the most. I have been known to post on Real GM yeah, a few so thousand you, times. So yeah, you had the the LG handle right and. Uh, I was uh, I was doing a very similar thing on Bloggable in about 2004 and 2005 uh, until finally I decided to start actually writing under my name instead of run, writing as a commenter and writing these exceedingly long fan posts. That, <laughs> that, uh, so I was like, well, I'm, I'm putting all this effort into this. Maybe I should put my name on it. Um, but that yeah, you, didn't you go too far. Yeah, you go too far with the with the handle. Yeah, and then you can't go back because people are like, "Who's Kevin?" Yeah, exactly. What, exactly. What happened to LG? <laughs> yeah. So you've got you've still got the Twitter handle LG thirty uh, five. So that's uh, people still can can recognize uh, recognize you. But yeah. So you've always been um, you know kind of 
I, I think a, a good description uh, for Ben's work is uh, Ben, for a lot of people, is your favorite basketball writer's favorite basketball writer. <laughs> 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 uh, that, that's, uh, I think it's pretty high praise. I, I know that – I feel like I remember um, someone uh, talking to me one time uh, or I remember maybe reading uh, something Kevin Arnovitz said or uh, – talked about and he was referencing your work and was, said he really enjoyed it. Um, so I, you know, if Kevin Arnovitz likes your work, then it's uh, it's pretty good stuff. <laughs> I have had, it's funny that you say that I have had a number of guys like Kevin Arnovitz in the, in the industry, like a Tom Haberstroh or just these guys that are just out there and they'll talk about something I did or they'll tweet it out or stick a link back in the old days. You had like, morning joe and they would link to all the bloggers on the internet um but it, it never followed through it was always <laughs> like there was always there was always a bottlenecking effect there so yeah 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 but I, yeah that's the uh so I'm, I'm glad to see this is all a long way of saying that ben has been doing really great stuff for a long time uh, and i'm glad that now he's on nylon and so his, his stuff will get uh even more exposure than just uh sort of the the nerdiest of basketball nerds <laughs> although you know that, that that is still our niche in nylon <laughs> i think to some extent but um it, it's a little bit becoming more mainstream i think so it's it's good stuff well thank you i'm glad to be aboard <laughs> so uh in terms of your, your origins we you talked a little bit about how long you've been writing for it how did you start getting into basketball and like did you have a favorite team or was what, what was your sort of uh your basketball origin story Ooh, um, I picked up a ball when I was four <laughs> and <laughs> loved it. Um, I, my memory from youth is I, I played all the sports, followed all the big sports. And the thing that stands out over the years with basketball winning is that I, I sat down and I said, okay, I love football, but there's no buzzer beaters <laughs> and, and hockey's cool. But I mean, come on the last minute, you know, what's going to happen. They pull the goalie. It's kind of exciting. Um, Baseball, you get like a bottom of the ninth walk-off hit. That's pretty cool. But, man, when that ball's in the air and the buzzer sounds, that is like the best feeling as a sports fan. So um, if you've read the book, you might think it's ironic. but <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had a huge obsession with late-game stuff and clutch moments, and um, that, that's really what hooked me, and it's, it's, it's been my sport ever since. So did you did you have uh, were you big into college ball NBA at first both or in did you have particular rooting interests or, and do you still or yeah 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 big big time both um, I it was interesting so I grew up in Boston but the, when I, when I was of age to kind of start getting into and watching stuff it was the season Bird missed with his back oof so so I it's like I followed the Celtics but they didn't have the glory to me. And I was so into basketball, I, I seeked out other stuff. So I loved the early 90s trailer, Trailblazers with, like, Terry Porter manning the point. Nice. Um, Jerome Kersey flying down the wing. Cliff Robbins. I just love that team. And also very weird teams. Like, the 90s Timberwolves fascinated me for some reason. They were terrible. And they had, like, Pooh Richardson and Doug West. And just – so I was, I was all over the map. Um, I loved the Fab Five in college. Loved the 90 UNLV – team um and from there it's just kind of been different teams over the years so i think you, you, and you follow you it seems like you follow what it what interests you rather than rooting for laundry 
Um, yeah, I definitely, I definitely got back into the Celtics when they got good and then started to realize like, Hey, I'm, I'm rooting for laundry, but also my, my, like when the Celtics would get eliminated, I would still really be in teams that come together. Uh, so uh, look, I'm, I'm the guy who in high school was on the off night on Monday nights when we didn't have a game was like in the other team's gym, scouting the guys with the coaches, <laughs> writing down their tendencies and things like that. So, yeah. It's, so, uh, so, so basketball has always been a pretty big obsession. Yeah, I think we can use the word obsession. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you, you can admit, I admit it. it. I admit it. In this audience, I admit it. I'm coming out of the closet. <laughs> so, so it sounds like with the tracking with your coaches and stuff like that, you've always been pretty analytical about basketball then? Yeah, definitely. Um, again, when I was a kid, I, I started collecting Peterson Pro Previews. They put out these um, seasonal previews every year. I get the preview in like October and I would wear that thing out by March, just going through all the data they had and like who won the most jump balls and who led the league in X or Y. Um, And math was, I was pretty good at math, but didn't really get into any of like the stat stat stuff, I would say until mm, six, seven years ago. Back then it was just still more of like having an inclination for numbers or being interested in what was being tracked or player tendencies. Uh, but I didn't really get hardcore probably until like the last decade. Nice. Yeah. I think that, that tracks kind of nicely with, uh, with how that stuff has emerged um, in the last uh, probably 10 years or so in the, in the league. Um, so your, your interest with it probably spiked at the right time. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I, um, as, so my background is in my degree is in cognitive science and, and I do obviously a lot of behavioral science stuff. Um, and the book is kind of like this blend of, of social science and basketball and how they intersect. Uh, and we can, we can talk about that later, but what ended up happening when I was in school, you have to learn, you know, particular statistical techniques as part of any research you do. And that's where I really started to like get into more formal or technical stuff where I was like, okay, yeah, you can do more than just take like an average of something. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes that makes total sense. I know it's there's a, a lot of the um social sciences, I think uh, people don't necessarily think of them as being super math heavy, but a, a lot of like any serious program you end up doing a lot of uh, uh statistical research and you have to know how to to apply the the right statistical technique to whatever problem you're trying to uh solve or whatever question you're trying to answer. So that's uh makes total sense that if you were there for cognitive science that, uh, so I guess that's probably more of a, even a hard science than a, a softer social science. But, um, I, so I guess that's a good transition though, because your, your book is, um, you know, it's, it's about basketball, but it's a, as much about, um, sort of cognitive biases as it is about basketball and sort of it's, uh, as much about how you how we think about basketball and how we observe basketball uh, as anything else, and so the title "Thinking Basketball" is is very appropriate. Um, I I think this is like a, a very interesting 
field of study. Uh, one of my, my favorite podcasts uh, that I listen to is called You Are Not So Smart, which is basically <laughs> all, all about cognitive biases and how we fool ourselves about certain things. Um, and, you know, that, that was a free plug for their podcast. <laughs> but uh, just, just to say that I, this is, you know, something I'm very interested in myself. And I think anybody that is is trying to uh, evaluate um the game as objectively as possible uh, should know about these things because they affect you even if you don't believe that they do uh, because they affect everybody. Um, so th- so th- that's a, just a way of table setting um, sort of what the book's about. And if you want to sort of dive into any more detail, you know, go ahead. But Well, it's a good segue um, because here, here's the thing behind the scenes. I kept sitting down to write a slightly different book at first, which was which was really had nothing to do with social science. And I kept getting pulled back in that direction. And I realized after a while I couldn't really tell the story I wanted to tell without weaving these two things together. And that was that was the main thrust for me. It was our role in this dance, our role as observers how that plugs into how we discuss the game, talk about the game. Um, we're in the summer right now, and, and you know, we you got huge trades and rookies, and, you know, we drool over summer camp things and all sorts of stuff. But what happens to us as observers that actually impacts the way we write these stories and the way we remember things over time and all that, I, I just couldn't escape our own role in that as I dug into the basketball stuff. So... That was really the the genesis of the book. And then it goes on to talk about um, a handful of sort of major drivers that I think shape common narratives that uh, we spin when we talk about the sport. And it it applies to anything as well, um, as you said, right? It's, It's not just us in basketball. It's us in anything else in life. So sort of in the back of my head, I had this hope of like, okay, cool. If people read this, then maybe they can use this in another area. Um, whether it's work or a relationship or, you know, watching football or whatever, doesn't matter. Yeah. I I mean, when I, uh, when I, it was funny when I bought the book, I bought the book because you wrote it more so than like, I didn't, I hadn't, you know, didn't know that much about what the book was going to be about. I figured it would have some of, some of the stuff, uh, that you had written about on your blog and, and things of that nature. Um, but I wasn't expecting a book that was as much about, sort of uh, car, like the cognitive biases thing. And um, that was something that independently I had just been interested in myself. And so when I got the book and actually sat down and read it, I was like, wow, this is, <laughs> this, is I'm, this is exactly, uh, I'm, I'm the perfect target audience for this. So I was very happy when I got it and got, actually got a chance to read it. Um, that's not to say that it doesn't have a lot of interesting just like um, data, but just like it it will make you think differently about more than just basketball. I think if you, if this is not an area that you have been interested in, so definitely um, buy Ben's book. <laughs> um, within the context of the book, you know, we talked about that it covers a lot of the different um, biases, sort of the, the major drivers. Uh, do you think that there's a, a one particular uh, bias that casual fans fall victim to more than, more than others? Hmm. I, I would say, and this is why I think I, I ended up leading with it in the book, I would say this idea of scoring blindness or scoring focus. It's the same concept in, in, 
in uh, cognitive research and attentional research, we talk about focus on items. Like if you have a crime, there's this thing called weapons focus, where your attention is so drawn to a weapon, if you're not familiar with being around them, that essentially you don't process the peripheral data at all. Your brain just struggles to do it. And so you have this interplay between what's in your awareness, what's coming into your stream of consciousness, and how these things ended up uh, end up being encoded in your memory. I was actually lucky enough to do some research on this at UCLA. Uh, and I think that's what you know started to have this profound effect with me. But by the way, I've committed almost every bias in the book as, as you know, history of my fandom we talked about, like <laughs> good 20 years of this, right? So it was, it was a slow plot process to change my rubric to completely and slowly uh, invert how I saw the sport or how I saw myself seeing any sport, right? So um, with scoring blindness, what ends up happening is people just watch the ball. And when you watch the ball, all kinds of things happen from there. You don't notice things happening off the ball. You start to not notice defensive plays. You won't notice passing as much. Um, and so you become very, very focused and oriented on who the guy is who's scoring, but you don't realize how the team is scoring and all the other things going on. I think it's Bill Russell or someone uh, in, back in the day is attributed with saying, maybe even Arbach, uh, there's nine. Of, no, no, it's a college coach. It's John Wooden, right? Nine other guys. Nine other guys are on the court without the ball. And if you can't impact the game without the ball, uh, then, then there's trouble or something. That was the worst paraphrasing ever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, you know, the quote I'm talking about. Yeah, I, I think I do. I don't, I don't know it off the top of my head, but it, it sounds like something Wooden would have said, uh, or a, a paraphrase of something that he would have said, but it, yeah, it makes total sense. I think like, um, uh, another sort of metaphor, or like example that people use of a, of a similar sort of, the ties to that kind of cognitive bias is like the idea that like if you are on the side of the road and you dropped your keys you'll look for it uh where there's street light even though there's just as good a chance if not better chance than that you're that your keys are somewhere in the dark but right you're looking where you have the best visibility uh because that's where you're most likely to find them uh but you're or, or that's where your attention is sort of drawn to. And then the same way your the ball is where your attention is drawn to, but the keys that are actually allowing somebody to score might be in all that dark space. That is the, the parts of stuff that are happening off of the ball. Right, right, right. I, I mean, the thing is, and I talk about this in the book, all of these tools we use are shortcuts. They make sense. They're, they're, they're smart in a way. They help us in all kinds of areas that have nothing to do with basketball. So even even looking for your keys in, you know, underneath the light, not a bad strategy because it's kind of hard to see stuff in the dark. Um, but when you when you carry that metaphor forward and you start to get into nuance and subtlety and the, the crazy fun thing about basketball is that you know, there's players play like six thousand possessions a year. You can't count that. Yeah, you have to, you have to record it. Yep. Yeah, that's that's like, I, I think, one of my favorite um things to sort of talk about uh, with some of that stuff is that the example that you always give is that nobody can remember uh, or even see all of the plays all like all year round. That's why we have uh, metrics and heuristics and shortcuts essentially is to, because the numbers can see, can quote unquote, see every possession. 
Um, right. You, you know, there's a, a flattening that happens when you're looking just at the average and you're not necessarily looking at every single play or seeing the extremes of one end or the other uh, so that you lose some information, but you also gain a lot just by the sheer scale of it. Um, so that's why people care about things like sample size or things like that more so than sort of the anecdote of, oh, I saw this guy. He was incredible. Right, 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 right. But the, the flip side to that, and I don't want to go on a tangent necessarily if you want to go there with me, but the flip side is I think the history of the analytics community is to go too deep into certain numbers, trust them too much, and you become devoid of the context. And what you're really trying to do in anything, whether you're running a, a social science experiment or you're trying to analyze basketball and figure out if you should trade Kyrie for Isaiah Thomas, which, which just happened, depending on when people are listening to this, um, you know, what you want to understand is, okay, someone counted all the possessions. Someone, quote unquote, saw all of the points. But how did Kyrie score those points? What were the tendencies? What's the team system? What's his role? Et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's super important, and I think um, has been lost or at the beginning of the movement was lost. And hopefully now is there's a meeting in the middle where you have to understand the context or else what you're counting doesn't have great weight. Yeah, I think that's, that's something that um, it's especially a, a bad thing that happens uh, on Twitter. <laughs> you know, I, I think <laughs> you, the, don't, you don't say <laughs> the, the 140 characters, uh, even with the threading that, you know, Twitter now allows you to do. Um, it's very easy to lose uh, the, the context or, you know, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm as guilty of this as anybody of saying, oh, this player stinks uh, because of X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, maybe he doesn't stink. Maybe it was uh, bad for that role or whatever. Um, sometimes players legitimately are not good. And like, it's fine to say that too, I guess. But uh, it's, it's that sort of analysis is uh, the 140 character analysis is not necessarily the most valuable. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it all, you know, to your point, loses a lot of, a lot of the context. So is that sort of, would you say that, uh, trusting the, the numbers too much is sort of the, the bias that sharper fans, uh, fall into too much or not necessarily looking at the context too much? Ooh, um, sometimes. Yeah. I, I do see, I do see people bend too hard in that direction and start to miss the context or what happens naturally is you, you work with something, you become accustomed to it. It gives you a new insight and then you can become overly telescopic and just rely on that number too much. I'm not going to, I'm not going to mention R E P spelled backwards. (laughs) I I wouldn't do that to the, to the folks. Um, (laughs) But you know, that sometimes can happen very organically. And uh, I, I, I see this a lot. I see a false dichotomy where you have on one side of the fence people saying, oh, the eye test is really important. And you have on the other side of the fence people saying, oh, the data is really important. And I kind of feel like I'm in the middle screaming, no, you need both. They go together. Yeah. They literally go together. It's like a guitar and the musician. It's the interaction and how they play off each other in the context that that derives the meaning. Yeah, I think um, to some extent uh... – I don't want to get myself in trouble, but I think there there is a perception amongst people that rely more heavily on the eye, eye test that the people that do some of the numbers heavy stuff um, are maybe not watching the games or not as uh, mm-hmm. interested in the eye test. 
Um, in my experience, that's not the case. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that, that you see that dichotomy coming a lot more from one side than the other. Um, but I don't want to like, you know, wage a, uh, a war against uh, a straw man or, or people that are not here to defend themselves. But that, that has been my experience, at least on Twitter is it seems like people that are, I test heavy are, um, tend to sort of uh, say, well, you know, you, you numbers guys don't watch the games. And it's like, well, maybe we just watch the games and come to different conclusions than you do. Um, so You're getting yourself in trouble, Kevin. I know. I'm going to get yelled at on Twitter for this. But. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, let, me, let, me, let me play the other side, though. I think I have seen too many a, too many a person say, um, well, you know, I'm going to use this stat as a definitive slam dunk. And if you don't understand the math behind the, the stat, then this really comes down to you just not understanding math or something like that. There may be a grain of truth in that, but it's, again, if you're relying too heavily on one thing, um, I think that's where some people can go wrong. Yeah. I mean, none of the, none of the one number metrics, even the very best ones, um, and even like taking taking any of the numbers and grouping them up or looking at a, a, you know, a portfolio of different numbers, none of them is going to tell you everything. You just kind of have to know. And that's, again, I guess to your point um, about, you know, combining the two, you have to know, you know, why did this guy uh, score uh, on relatively mediocre efficiency? Oh, well, he didn't have anybody else on his team that could score. So right, he took a ton right. of shots or something like that. Um, right. And, you know, maybe that was overall good for his team's offense. But, uh, you know, the, it, one of the other things that's tough about basketball is with those contextual questions. You never um, totally have the counterfactual um, because there's so many confounding elements. And, like, you don't mm-hmm. see guys play um, in different environments in the same year usually. And even if they do play in different environments, uh, you know, they might have had an injury or, you know, whatever. The, the, there's almost always some kind of uh, rationale or reason that you can come up with and understanding whether or not that makes sense is I think the, the tough part. Right, right, right. I, I you know, I was just going to say we, to, to continue waxing philosophical about this, um, <laughs> we, we, we talk about in the book, I talk about diminishing returns uh, as a function of the way basketball works, particularly on offense. But I think there are also diminishing returns to the way we perceive things and the shortcuts we come up with and the narratives we have. I mean, the first guy to track a game who said, oh, let me figure out who's scoring the points, that was a pretty good idea. When, when people are out there and they say, oh, you know, I haven't studied the sport with crazy, uh, what was the word we used earlier, obsessive detail <laughs> for 20 or 30 or 40 years, yep. but I can, give you, I can give you a top 25 list of all time it's going to be pretty decent. He's not going to have, um, you know, like Charles Smith in his top 10. Right. No, no offense to Charles Smith. <laughs> Charles Smith, if you're listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> Charles Smith, if you're listening, you get way too much flack. That was Scottie Pippen. You just, you just have to take your hat off to Scottie Pippen for the, for the 93 game five play. <laughs> and for the refs for swallowing their whistles. <laughs> oh, now it's all coming out. 
Well, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, you know, uh, well, I'm a reformed Bulls fan, but I, I, at the time, I was a Bulls fan, so I can, I can admit it. They, they he got, he got whacked. <laughs> I don't know where he got whacked. I feel like I've seen that play, and he gets stripped over and over. Maybe we'll have to, maybe we'll have to have, have a, to watch it in slow motion. I, yeah, maybe, we'll have maybe to have just, Twitter uh, off or something. Maybe I'm just assuming that he got whacked because he, it was so many times in a row, and there were so many arms in there that I feel like he had to have gotten whacked at some point. I, I feel like it's funny. I was talking about this at dinner with someone who's a Knicks fan recently. I feel like uh, the brilliance of Marv Albert as a commentator helped immortalize that for poor Charles Smith because Marv just had that like, you know, Charles Smith, 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 Smith again, Smith, <laughs> Smith. <laughs> just like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, everything sounded bigger with uh, with Marv doing it. That it's that is. Uh, I, I feel like all any of those clips with him, uh, you know, that they, they feel more. Uh, I don't know, epic oh. with Marv's voice than sort of than anybody else. Marv was amazing, marvelous. <laughs> um, all right, so there's anyway, no- anyway. Yeah, I was going to say, just to, to transition a little bit. So we're kind of touched on some of this a little bit, I think, but to, to drill down a little bit more into it, you introduced a couple of concepts in the book. Um, and so one of them is global offense, which is, I think, to some extent, the counterweight to this scoring blindness you talked about. And then you also mentioned mm-hmm. the, the in the book that the one of the important things for success is the portability of skills. Uh, can you explain, explain for people, uh, those two concepts and sort of how they intersect? Yeah, definitely. Probably, probably my favorite, uh, my favorite ideas philosophically from the book about basketball. Um, so the whole idea behind global offense, it was a term that we really started using in forums and in the community, uh, when we, when we were talking about differentiating between a guy's own personal stat line and his actual effect on the scoreboard. So again, it's the counterweight to let me go look at the fact that somebody like Wilt, who's an example I use in the book, Wilt scored 50 points a game. Therefore, back in the day, there was sort of this automatic de facto connection that like, well, Wilt is the best at scoring. He's the best at offense. He's doing all this scoring. He's doing more scoring than other people. He's better at scoring than other people. And that's not true. And, and the idea that it's not true, you can explain it, you can get into it, understand why, and I do in the book. Um, but the idea that that's not true to me is part of what makes basketball so cool. It's not baseball. It's so fascinating. And um, the fact that it's, it's not just about points or efficiency either, right? So Adrian Dantley is this really high efficiency guy. And people say, well, if your efficiency is high, and your scoring is high, then you, then you must be, you know, awesome at offense again, not true. So the, the, the global offense term was really just this idea to describe the way in which a guy impacts his team's offense, whether it's passing, shooting, post up, um, on ball, off ball, pick and roll, doesn't matter. You want to understand how that plugs into the uh, entire team outcome. Okay. Full stop. Deep breath. (laughs) what it's, you it's a big what, concept it is it is a big concept but it leads so i in the book i lead with that and then i come back around at the end to portability um which was really years of looking at this stuff and understanding the implications and like there's ramifications for that description that i just went through 
and it takes a while to see it. But one of those ramifications is, well, and you can see this, the data's in the book, you can see it by studying history. You can take guys and they can be incredible scorers. Wilt in 62, average 50 a game. Jordan in 87, the highest scoring rate of all time, average like 37 a game. Kobe in 06, on and on and on. And you can take those guys and they never really produce great offenses. One guy doing all the scoring never really produces a great offense. The question is why? You take that same guy and you move him to different teams. Typically what happens if he's a quality offensive player, his scoring goes down, his efficiency and to a degree his assists and his creation and all this stuff go up. And he does that because the redistribution of the scoring options improves. But that can only happen if the player's skill set can support that. And that's where portability comes in. If the player doesn't have the skill set to mesh with other good players, right, the team has this hard ceiling. So portability is really about scaling. It's about how well your game travels. And it gets into floors and ceilings, um, which I think is becoming – I see it talked about way more. But when I started writing about that, it was probably – Oh, five, six years ago, it just wasn't really in the vernacular, in the consciousness much. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. I I, I think that, yeah, yeah, you definitely see people talk about ceilings and floors, although I don't know if they necessarily get talked about in the same exact way as you're talking about them. Um, a lot of the times I feel like people use ceilings and floors, especially when talking about like prospects as a proxy for athleticism <laughs> as opposed to uh maybe a, a skill set ceiling and floor um you know the a guy that's a great scorer uh and that's sort of all he does maybe has a, a pretty decently high floor because you know that they're gonna do that one thing really well but they right. maybe have a, a low ceiling because um you're not gonna they're not going to actually provide that that global offensive impact that you that you talk about. I think a interesting um, couple of examples of, of that are uh, guys like Demar Derozan and, and Andrew Wiggins. And um, you know, Derozan I think has has been probably a little bit unfairly credited with uh, some of the Raptors' offensive success that they've had um, recently, which I think probably owes more to. Uh, Kyle Lowry than to DeRozan um, and Wiggins is another one he's a guy who scores a lot of points but he's not incredibly efficient so that scoring on its own is not super valuable and then he's not a guy that really creates for others or hits the glass all that well and you know when you look at his overall portfolio of offensive skills it's like he he does one thing uh, you know at with volume but doesn't necessarily do it all that efficiently and he's he's really not providing all that much uh to opportunity wise for his teammates right 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 i i think it is it is a new and sort of complex thing uh if you're not familiar with it but i think one easy way to start thinking about the ramifications are if you take a guy who takes 20 or 25 shots a game you take a guy like DeRozan and you put him on a new team, and let's say he still ends up taking 20 shots a game. Those 20 shots have to come at someone else's expense. There's a trade-off. The plays that lead to those 20 shots come at the expense of plays that were run when he wasn't there. So when you get into really extreme examples, you get into Kevin Durant going to the Warriors isn't going to make the Warriors an 80-win team. 
Right. <laughs> and the re- that's that's what you get into. You get into these diminishing returns. You get into how how a skill set skill set scales. Say that ten times fast. <laughs> um, and for instance, I think if I think if you're Golden State, and instead of adding Durant, you add a guy like Carmelo Anthony, instead of getting a little bit better, you probably get worse. And you get worse because you're going to have more Carmelo Anthony possessions that are independent of what's happening. It's about dependency. Basketball is linked together with this beautiful jazz-like dependency. And once you have that synergy, if you disrupt it, you can get worse, even though you bring in a guy that averages 30 points a game. Right. Yeah, that, that's a, Melo is a great example because – even mo- even a lot of the so-called like advanced metrics, I think think he's like uh, maybe not recently um, because he started to age and things like that. But he's you know think of him as still being a a good player. Um, and you know offensively, I think he's he's pretty disruptive uh, most of the time because he he loves to hold the ball and he's he's not a great passer. I don't think he's a terrible rebounder, but he's like not a, an excellent rebounder or anything like that. And so like. There's there's no flow uh, to the offense when he is in there, um, and you know they they compounded that uh, by adding another one of those guys with Derrick Rose, um, and you know I, I thought that that really uh, he was in a, you know that example was like he really really he and Rose I think were worked to the detriment of uh, Kristaps Porzingis, and you know if you did, redistributed some of the possessions to um, Porzingis or even just to like open shots for like guys that are strictly finishers that aren't necessarily shot creators. Um, you know, they may have been a little bit better offensively. Uh, and yeah, you see, you see these, these guys that hold the ball for a long time and then take a a difficult shot. It's like, that's, that's not really helping. Um, it's one thing to like take a difficult shot at the, as a bailout option when, you know, the offense breaks down, but if you're holding the ball, at the outset and kind of extinguishing better options that are available. Um, that's not like being able to hit difficult shots is a useful skill in certain contexts, but it's not, if you're, if you're the one forcing those shots to be difficult in the first place, that that's a problem. Kevin, are you saying that people could predict <laughs> that the Knicks wouldn't be that good with Derek Rose and Carmelo? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I, I think I think that's right. I think we, we had a pretty good idea, uh, although Derek Rose thought they were a super team. So <laughs> this is, you know, speaking of super team, this is like thinking may, maybe I don't know. Someone else maybe could have predicted this. I don't know how that the Bulls with all their scores last year wouldn't be a great offense either is that kind of the same thing you're talking about yeah yeah it's i mean the it, i don't want to touch on a, a sore subject for you yeah the it, yeah it's it's almost like uh if you put uh three guys out there that are all not great shooters and and uh and are all playing in the backcourt positions and also put a center out there that doesn't really space the floor <laughs> Uh, that that there it'll make things really difficult and the offense might grind to a halt because all those things are interdependent. <laughs> it's almost like that's if, a thing. If there's only one ball and you have three isolation scores, you have two idle players. Yes, and, yeah, uh, those guys are not threats off the ball. That, right. That's the other thing I think that's really um, interesting and kind of comes out of that concept is like there are guys who um, you know when you talk talked about ceilings and floors like. Uh, having certain guys on your team, uh, if you're going to make the best use out of their skill set, 
um, they end up putting a ceiling on your team. Like I think about like somebody like Evan Turner. Like Evan Turner is a he's definitely an NBA player. He has skills that like are at an NBA level. But if you have Evan Turner on your team, the best use of Evan Turner is to put the ball in his hands. But he's not good enough to uh, to be a lead ball handler on a good team. But then if you take the ball out of his hands, he is not a shooting threat, so he hurts you that way. <laughs> I I love how you started with the incredibly high bar of Evan Turner, good enough to be in the NBA. <laughs> it's like it's like my friend Steve, not a racist. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you more about him. He's great. <laughs> yeah, he. I mean, I, I I wanted to say that that like he like Evan Turner in certain contexts can be a useful player. He just is not going to. It's not. He's never going to be a useful player for an elite team. I guess is is the way to to say it. Um, right, right, right. Because he he can't play off the ball, and he's if he's your one of your lead ball handlers, and you're not going to be very good. And that that sort of gets again back to your concept of ceilings and floors, and um, how people the, the sort of global offensive impact. Um, all right, shifting away from that for for a minute, and but this is kind of this is all all this stuff is kind of related. So where most of this stuff is, uh, you're you're uh, putting data to sort of philosophical concepts, which I always like. Um, so you had a, you had a piece on your own website, Backpicks, about the importance of supporting casts versus stars. Um, it's, I have a link to it as my pinned tweet right now <laughs> because I, I liked it so much. Um, but, uh, you basically, the, the takeaway was that you, the supporting casts matter more than the best player on, on a team. Um, that I think would be surprising to a lot of people. Uh, but uh, you, you want to go into sort of the methodology there and, and how you, you arrived at that conclusion? Well, I used, I think, it, I, think I had an 11-year data set from 2002 to 2012 using an adjusted plus-minus data set. And I actually did it a while ago. It was an, it was an old, that's why the, the range was like 02 to 012. It was at 12. It was an old conversation. And we were looking at different ways to try to sort of quantify how much a star does, how much a supporting cast does. And one of the things I really like about RAPM uh, is it can, it can miss context on individual players, but when you do these like large-scale studies, it's hard to say, well, it's, it's cheating everywhere. It's, it's underselling everyone. Right. It kind of gives you a re- really good snapshot, right? So we use that data set. Um, and what I ended up doing was uh, minute weighting everything and just basically saying, okay, if you if you take their RAPM and then adjust for how many minutes they play, what's the total outcome of the team? And if you do that with that metric, you get a decent ballpark of a team's quality. Sometimes it's, it misses margin of victory by a couple points, but it's pretty good. And then you look at the best player, and whoever has the highest RAPM on the team weighted by minutes, like Tim Duncan for the 03 Spurs or whatever, he's the best player. And then the other guys are the supporting cast. And what you see is that it's extremely difficult, basically impossible, for a player on a good team, on a team of any significance that's going to reach the conference finals, the finals, win a title, whatever, to have more impact on the game than the other guys on the team and on the court. Um, And I think that makes sense if you start to think about it. 
because this is where people get tripped up. I've had uh, some tweets and questions about this. When you look at the chart that I put up from that data, people say, well, now hold on. I see like the supporting cast gives you a, takes you from like, you know, I don't know, like a negative two or one plus one point differential or something like that. And then the star, he's worth like five points. So the star is more important. The supporting cast takes you from the floor to 500. The supporting cast takes you from like replacement player level. That's what you have to remember. And the replacement player level is like a minus 14 or 15 point differential. We've had teams that win, you know, single digit games over the course of a season. That's what happens Sorry, when you uh, don't Charlotte have any good fans. players. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or Denver. Yeah. Um, or Philadelphia. But, you know, if you don't, if you don't have anybody good, and the, the thing that always cracked me up about emphasizing stars and de-emphasizing the supporting cast is if you're watching game six of the 2010 finals and Kendrick Perkins gets injured, all you talk about is how, well, it would have been different if the Celtics, if Perkins could have. He's like a 25-minute-per-game player <laughs> who's, who's your fifth, sixth, seventh best player, and that's exactly the point. The fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth best player matter a lot. When Kendrick Perkins gets injured, his role on the team is defense and rebounding. They don't have anybody to come in and rebound and defend that well because those guys don't grow on trees. They're a commodity. You can get them. That's why they're not top ten players. But you, every roster isn't just filled with wonderful role players who do things really well. I go back to the 03 Spurs for this example, right? The 03 Spurs, they didn't have any other superstars or big-time scorers besides Duncan. But they had, you have Popovich, you have a great system, you have Bruce Bowen for man defense, you have Steven Jackson for some isolation offense. He's an outside shooter. Steve Kerr came in one game and hit like, it's a Steve Kerr game. He hit like four or five threes in a row against Dallas. Tony Parker could penetrate and create. You go on and on down the team. Everybody played a role well. You had eight or nine guys playing a role well. That's a pretty good team. Not a great team. That's a good team. And so to, to replace those players, that's where the supporting cast comes in. There's eight or nine guys typically that have impact, not just the, the so-called second banana or a tertiary guy or whatever. Yeah, I think that, that definitely makes sense. I think like uh, a good example of the importance of sort of the the other guys is uh, even like a couple of years ago, I think a lot of the people that did projections, myself included, with using sort of uh, adjusted plus minus based metrics um, kind of called out that the Celtics were, were probably going to be a near 50 win team. Uh, and that right. was before sort of that played out and they ended up, uh, you know, overachieving according to the conventional wisdom. And it was largely because they didn't have any bad players on their team. They didn't have those replacement level guys. They had nothing but guys that were either average or, or pretty good. Um, and you know, they didn't have that elite star, but basically what they had was like an amazing supporting cast in need of <laughs> that one guy to, to put <laughs> right. them over the top, but they still, you know, won like almost 50 games that way. Um, right. And so it was, uh, you know, the, a win for the sort of projection community and that sort of thing. But I think it also gets to that idea of like, um, you know, you can have an awful lot work for you just based on having removing uh, bad players from and, and just having a bunch of really good guys. Um, 
even if they're not if there's no one so you know elite in that group the takeaway is that uh, you can with a supporting cast you can be the you know nine win charlotte team or you can be i mean basically I always think of, for some reason, I think of like Anthony Mason's Hornets, who were they're like winning 50 games, and the best player on that team is kind of like a fringe all star at best. Yep. And that and that's a supporting cast, right? When you start to stack that team with a well fitted number one, number two, you you put all the pieces in place. That's when you get a great team. Uh, Golden State right now, they're they're kind of great top to bottom. They don't have a lot of depth, but they're built and uh you know when the stars are off the court they're not getting outscored by 10 or 15 points a night yeah they they're another one that doesn't necessarily give a lot of minutes to guys that are you know just off the scrap heap and to the extent that they find guys off the scrap heap they all all seem to uh perform better than than you would expect (laughs) out of that um out of that group and uh so yeah i mean i think I think it makes it makes total sense, and even just like from a, a very high level perspective, if you're saying uh, four guys on the floor matter more than uh, when aggregated up more than uh, one guy, I think it starts to you know you start to see why that makes sense, right? It's right, just like right. sheer numbers, uh, you, you know, and it gets to that whole idea of like one guy is in basketball because it's a dynamic game and because it's, you know these guys interact together. One guy can only do so much. And I think people a lot of the time, um, and I think maybe the conventional wisdom has even swung this way, is that like uh, basketball, is, there's only five guys on the court and they play both sides. So obviously one guy can have a huge impact. And to a certain extent, that's true. But like the four guys around that guy are still going to matter more at the end of the day than, than he is. Somebody's got to make the shots. Right. right. I mean, no one, no one in history has really taken more than a third of his team's shots. So somebody's got to make those shots. And I think, um, I think that's actually, it's funny too, that like the, uh, you know, that you used a very like advanced, uh, stat to, um, or like, uh, you know, a very numbers heavy approach to, to get at this. But like, I think it's something that Shaquille O'Neal has said on, uh, inside the NBA that like the, the stars are the stars and they kind of like are there. And the difference in most of the series are what the other guys do. Um, you know, that, so it's kind of the, you know, essentially the same idea. He just got there by, having played in the league um and you know occasionally Shaq gets some things right (laughs) (laughs) the the broken clock yes yeah a lot of his analysis doesn't doesn't necessarily feel right but that one uh he he even the the, sort of the 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 rationale behind it seemed to make sense because you know stars are stars and they're kind of the rocks and then there's a you know part of the reason that they're stars is they probably have a little bit less variance in their performance than uh Mm -hmm. than uh the the other guys yep Um, all right last big topic to cover um and it's a very interesting one um so one of you one of the first things that i read from you was uh about your some of your um stat tracking that you did uh with you know by hand with your your eyes in a spreadsheet um because some of the ideas and concepts that you introduced were, were very interesting uh one of those concepts was op- opportunities created um, in a second, I'm going to let you uh, get into defining that out for people. Um, but then you also 
after having done that for a long time, translated that to you coming up with a box score metric for creation, uh, which was very cool. And you wrote about that recently on Nylon Calculus. So for the audience, what is uh, an, an opportunity created in your sort of uh, definition? So here's the idea. Anytime on offense, you can get the defense to react to you and move out of position in a way that they otherwise wouldn't. So this is typically a double team, right? Like you're in the post, you're threatening to score, a double team comes over. Now you, by virtue of being a threat to score, have created this opportunity for your teammates. You still have to give them the ball. You still have to pass it and find an open shot. But it's your presence. The, another term that's caught on lately is gravity, right? Like pulling players toward you because of your threat to score. And then if you actually finish that with an open shot, which happens all the time, you'll move the ball or you'll find an open guy for a layup or a three or whatever. That's an opportunity created. The idea was, again, getting back to this dependency, uh, independency idea. If you're an isolation scorer and you play one-on-one, you don't need anybody to help you with that. Yes, spacing helps and we can get super, super nerdy and start talking about that, but let's table that. In general, guys are not creating their own offense around the league. So when you play with Steve Nash, he was, he was really one of the case studies for me, Amari Stoudemire and Steve Nash. And that year, I actually predicted, based on the data I had, what Amari Stoudemire's true shooting percentage, his scoring efficiency would be when he was traded. And I think I was with, I think I was in within like uh, it, it, I think he went down to like 56 and I predicted 55 five or something like that. And the only re- I didn't predict that really the data did. It just said, look, when you play with a guy who doesn't get you as many layups and open jumpers as the pick and roll Houdini himself, Mr. Nash, what's going to happen to your offense? How does your isolation and self-created offense function? And that was really the, the impetus for the whole thing. Um, I wanted to do a lot that the box score wasn't capturing. But on offense, we capture a lot historically with the box score, especially since the 70s. We've introduced a bunch of stuff. And they had it pretty good. But, you know, creation to me, this is probably my favorite piece I ever wrote, the the box creation piece for Nylon, because it gets at this super, super core fundamental idea. Scoring is like the right hand. Sorry, I'm I'm right-handed for this analogy for all the southpaws out there scoring is like the right hand but creation's like the left hand they go hand in hand and when the defense doesn't come at you hard enough and you're a skilled scorer you should take it down their throat and score when you get the defense to react that's when you find a higher efficiency shot than your double team fadeaway uh, by by getting an open three or an open layup or working it around for an open jumper and you activate the potential in your teammates by doing that. That you know, all comes back together. Global offense, portability, but it's based on this idea of do I score or do I pass because I've created an opportunity for someone else. Yeah, it was it was really, really cool. And I, I know that the so f- from a high level for again for the audience, if you haven't had a chance to read the piece, you should go read it. But uh, the three real components of it, uh, of the box score version of your opportunity created stat were uh, essentially you had a component for points, a component for assists, and then uh, you had uh, this neat little uh, way of 
capturing volume and proficiency from uh, three point land to you know give a, a boost to the the spacing that gets provided to um, when guys are, are good shooters in that way. Um, and then that came with that you were able to essentially uh, track pretty closely with what your own um, right stat tracking was right. Right, right, right. So I had a bunch of data from my own stat tracking and ran a regression. And again, what was so interesting to me was what the regression said. I didn't come up with that. The regression said, hey, if you look at this scoring component and then take assists, assists were the thing that we started with. And someone, for simplicity, way back in the day said, let's track who scores when you pass them the ball. That's an assist. But an assist is not creation. You can have creation without an assist. The classic example is the hockey assist. Hakeem gets doubled in the post. He throws it out to Ori, who swings it to Ali, who swings it to Kenny Smith, who hits a three. Who gets the assist? Not Hakeem. But that shot and that play is not there without Hakeem on the court. On the, on the flip side, you can have what I call the rondo pass. You can have a guy <laughs> standing at the top, passing two wide-open players, other guys are doing the work off the ball, and he gets an assist. Similarly, you know, Magic, who is a phenomenal passer, but, I mean, he got a lot of assists just by throwing the ball into Kareem and having a lax scorekeeper in L.A. say, well, that's an assist because Magic was the last guy to pass it to Kareem. Yeah, but Cooper can pass it to Kareem, too. Right. And, in fact, and in fact when Magic missed time, Cooper had insane assist numbers in the 80s. So the idea was we've got something that approximates this, but it goes too high in one vein and too low in another. And the regression spit out these really interesting results, which is if you look at how someone threatens the defense with scoring, incorporate that passing data that we have and make a holistic adjustment using this like spacing outside threat in the modern game, you can really, really accurately approximate uh, the actual results you would get hand tracking uh, creation. Yeah, it was it was really really great. I I, I thought that uh, you know I just even when uh, you sort of you showed some of the the top guys in it, but I because I am this kind of person decided to go run the numbers for the whole <laughs> league and to, to see who graded out really well and who graded out really terribly, and it it really tracks pretty well with you know kind of exactly what you would you would think. Um, and so it's, uh, it's, it's definitely really, really cool, um, to see that. And then, um, you know, at some point I'm sure I'll, I'll go back and, uh, look at, look at sort of some of, some of the older seasons. Um, but I, I was speaking of that, I, I'm curious, uh, you know, a lot of like the first wave of sort of box score analytics were very kind of, I don't want to say efficiency obsessed, but they were they were very <laughs> they were uh, efficiency obsessed. Yeah. <laughs> do you, do you think that there are players that uh, were like people you know with those first wave of efficiency obsessed stats uh, looked at and kind of um, you know downgraded, but people with the eye test said were really good. Do you, do you feel like there's anybody in there that box creation uh, gives more credit to? Well, first of all, I don't want to let you off the hook there. I want people to realize that Kevin also tracked creation for the summer league. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah, I, I, I plugged the formula and it wasn't in an exact match because the stats that I had for, 
the stats that I had were from Real GM, and they were per 48 minutes and pace adjustment. Yeah, yeah. I think it's roughly close to per 100, but wasn't exactly the same. Uh, but yes, I did, and the usual suspects for that uh, also came out very high. Um, Lonzo, I think, was number one. Fultz was like two, and I think Dennis Smith Jr. was three, and Donovan right. Mitchell was up towards the top as well. So exactly the guys that you would expect. Oh, Dennis Smith. Um, yeah, he's gonna be anyway, fun. sorry. I was fantasizing, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I think the recent guy, and it's it's kind of just um, coincidental that he that he won MVP and was put in this situation without Westbrook. But I think I mean without Durant. But I think Westbrook is a guy who, when I actually was tracking games years ago when he was young, I was defending in the sense that people will undermine some of the stuff you do if they're too efficiency focused. So if you're a guy that has neutral level efficiency, and by the way, as an aside, efficiency itself needs to be put in context. We typically compare it to league average, right? right. But as you already mentioned just on this, on this podcast, um, shooting against the shot clock in the half court is way different than shooting at 21 seconds on a four on three. So, I think guys like uh, Westbrook, who had this ability, I call them like offensive vortexes or maelstroms. They just have this ability to warp and turn the defense around their gravity. Um, I think he was he was a little underrated and maybe still underappreciated by certain people, although I feel like he's pretty fairly rated now. Uh, but if you just focused on efficiency, it'll ding you. And I'd say the same thing historically for like the Kobe or McGrady type. Uh, you know, the old the old joke is most advanced stats don't like Kobe, um, which isn't entirely true. He, he grades out pretty well in uh, in offensive adjusted plus minus and things like that. But the thing I love about this is it's taking guys like that who are scorers, who are also skilled enough and good enough with their passing to have high levels of creation. And so that was one of the things that jumped out to me when I when I started tracking games years ago. It's like, wait a second. LeBron's not a point guard. Kobe's not a point guard. McGrady's not a point guard, but they, they are the functional lead guard. They are the guys with the ball in the post or in pick and roll who are causing all the attention to be drawn to them. And as a result, because they're skilled passers, they have some balance between scoring themselves and creating for other people. And then when you get into that and you say, okay, so-and-so is plus four points better than league average in his shooting percentage and someone else is plus 1% better. That shouldn't be a game changer if one guy doesn't create at all and the other guy is creating a bunch of open shots for his teammates. So that, that's probably, at least off the top of my head, those are the guys I would say. Yeah, that makes, that makes total sense. Uh, and I, I just remembered that uh, beyond being super nerdy and, and looking at summer league uh, box creation numbers, I also looked at the ACB league because I wanted to see, oh, that's right. I wanted to see, uh, I wanted to see where Luke, uh, Luka Doncic, uh, I think that's how you pronounce his name, uh, I wanted to see where he rolled up to. He's in, the, he's in the top 20 in the league, even though he's uh, like was 17 years old this year, I think. So he's pretty good. <laughs> You know, another guy, this is going to be an interesting test. We've made it one hour and we haven't really talked about him, is Kyrie Irving. Uh, yes, you know, we, we, we should touch on him a little bit since he was just traded uh, yesterday. So Kyrie has been a guy, I actually have a, a, a blog post 
that's 15 months old that I have never published. I probably never will. And it's just a draft sitting in my box about it's titled, is Kyrie Irving underrated? And it, and it largely has to do with stuff like this, where I'm getting mixed signals. We all know the, the, what the naysayers are saying. And we all know the data that suggests like, wait a second, Kyrie versus LeBron. One of these is an apple. One of these is an orange. <laughs> but then, then you get into stuff where like, let's look at, let's look at some of the uh, metrics on Kyrie right now. He was the 12th rated point guard in ESPN's, ESPN's RPM stat. Not the 12th rated player, the 12th rated point guard. He's historically a mediocre efficiency shooter. He was like plus 3% this year, and he was like league average last year. Um, he finished 36th, I think, in the 2017 um, NPI RAPM study. Boy, that is such a mouthful. NPI RAPM. That's not <laughs> non. Yeah. It's a sing, single year RAPM, right? Right. But but, and here's the big but. He fits the profile right now in these last two years of a classic wing offensive vortex. Kobe, McGrady, all these guys. His similar seasons. I I, I ran the numbers um, yesterday or today. His similar seasons in terms of scoring rate, scoring efficiency, and box creation line up with the following three seasons the closest. 2016 LeBron. Wow. <laughs> two, two, 2008 Kobe Bryant. 1985 Larry Bird. Pretty good. <laughs> those are the three seasons. So this is going to be one of those tests where, you know, I, I'm not sure. Again, podcasts are so – these things are so weird. If someone comes back in a year and listens to this and the Celtics had an amazing year, it's going to be that 2020. Like people were concerned about Kyrie. Um, yeah, people are like super concerned about Kyrie. But then you look at stuff like this and you say, all right, he's only 6'2 or 6'3. He's not that typical bigger wing. But he has this profile on the court uh, of actually – balancing his own scoring and creating for other people and chewing up the game pretty well, despite mediocre efficiency numbers. I think that's the test. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I, you know, it's funny that you, that you had a post called is Kyrie Irving underrated? Cause I think, uh, must've been almost two years ago. Now I wrote a, a post basically saying that he was overrated, uh, for the cauldron, um, and uh, of course he promptly went out. This was like right after one of the first couple of games in the finals that year. And, uh, of course he promptly went out and, uh, lit it up. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, he, he made me look, made me look stupid, but I actually, um, you know, I had a Farragut touch. Yeah, exactly. Um, but he, uh, you know, I actually had a conversation today, uh, obviously about the trade or I had multiple conversations about the trade because in my office, I'm the, the basketball nerd. So everybody wanted to talk to me about it. And then, uh, on Twitter, obviously, uh, it was the point of discussion. And I noticed that a lot of sort of the, uh, people that I tend to respect, uh, and, and value their opinion on things were kind of down on the trade for the Celtics. And I wasn't as weirdly, uh, as down on it. Um, and, you know, then I talked to um, Talking Practice, who is uh, yeah. on Twitter and it runs a 
wager NBA wagering group, uh, and he, you know, admittedly is a Celtics fan, but he was pretty high on on Kyrie, and that made me feel like I was um, that maybe I was on the right side of history. So it's funny as the guy that that wrote a piece where I got yelled at uh, for a long time by uh, Cavs fans and got called an idiot. Um, and had to like block half of Cleveland Twitter um, because of the how personally they took it. Um, n- now I'm sort of uh, on, on the other side of being kind of a, a Kyrie optimist, um, and, and uh, you know I don't know what that says about me, but <laughs> it's well, I think I, I think some of these players like Kyrie and Westbrook that fall in kind of like a middle zone between just being you can't create or you're just a ridiculous chucker. And you're clearly an elite offensive supernova. Not only are they polarizing sometimes, but I, I never know which case, like which environment or which system is going to work with them. I never know. Are they going to take like, it's easy when they're the only guy you knew Westbrook was going to come out and average about 87 points a game this year. Um, it's easy to predict that, but it's harder to predict when you go to a team like Boston, who now with Gordon Hayward and uh, Stevens and the principles that they like to use there. Is he going to look more like Kobe or is he going to look more like Iverson? That's the question. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know. I don't want to pretend to have a huge opinion on that, but I, it is the kind of thing where I've learned over the years to trust the numbers enough to say, Oh, okay, actually this guy fits a pretty good profile. Maybe that'll work. And maybe in a slightly different system, You'll see the shot selection go up a little bit or improve a little bit as the passing goes up a little bit. And all of a sudden, you've got kind of like a mega offensive vortex to work around. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, the, the, the bull case for, for Kyrie is we, that he has the size and at times has shown flashes of being a, a good defensive player. Um, even though most of the time he's pretty terrible because he doesn't really try. Um, so I think there's definitely a hope for optimism there. And then in terms of offense, he's an absolute, like he's absolutely one of the, the best tough shot makers in the league. Um, you know, uh, Krishna Narsu, who writes for Nylon um, and, and put together a couple of different metrics about shot making, one about sort of the, expected value of your shots you take and then um that kind of tries to adjust for uh you know the height of the defender the distance away that the defender is and where you are on the court and i think i don't know if he has shot clock included on that but i think he does um and then like what your um actual points per shot is on those you know and then subtracting out the difference Kyrie rates out extremely well on on those sorts of metrics so he makes tough shots incredibly well and then you know if you just watch him you can also see that like he finishes in traffic uh over like huge defenders like at an insane rate especially for a guy of his size um and so he he does because of that um you know I think he's a little bit harder to to stop than um, he's like one of those guys where the, his, his offense is relatively inelastic to the defense that's thrown at him. Right. He's got that resilience. Yeah. Right. Cause like, I think, um, you know, that's like a economics concept that I, I don't necessarily know that gets applied enough, but like, you know, in the playoffs, defenses are better just because, you know, you're calling out all the, the bad teams typically, um, you know, the bottom of the 
Eastern Conference playoffs notwithstanding. Uh, and so, you know, you're facing tougher defenses, but Kyrie's, you know, scoring ability doesn't seem to really bend in the face of tougher defenses, whereas some guys, you know, you do see that. So, um, and then I think also he's never really played for, I don't think, a great coach. Um, I, you know, he's had some pretty, like Mike Brown, I think is, was a pretty bad head coach. And then, you know, you had a couple of other uh, coaches that, you know, Ty Lue won a championship, but I think that had much more to do with LeBron going insane than, than anything strategically that uh, Lou did. Um, and I think, you know, everybody in, talks about Brad Stevens and how good he is at his job. And, um, you know, I think the impact that you saw that being in the Stevens systems had on uh, Isaiah Thomas, I think that is going to, you know, if you apply that and Isaiah is Good able point. to translate yeah. that, um, if Kyrie is able to translate that in the same way and to overachieve in the same way, he's starting from a, a higher talent level than Isaiah Thomas. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what the Celtics are after probably is just when you, when you upgrade your talent and you give a guy like Stevens uh, better ingredients to work with in the kitchen, uh, they're assuming that he's going to output something that's tastier. So, by the way, I, n- I noticed that dig at Coach K. Kyrie's never played for a good coach. Oh, I was talking in the I was talking in the uh, in the pro game. I I, I like to troll troll my uh, friends in my office who like Duke and tell them. Yeah, that you coach, have to coach you K's have a, to get the Duke troll. Um, but no, I think I don't think Coach K is a, a bad coach. But I I, I was more talking. I mean, Kyrie played what like ten games for for Duke, if that. Yeah. So yeah. you know, I was more talking about his his NBA track record. He hasn't necessarily had the best. Um, systems and even like you know you, you, a lot of people I think look at it uh, in the sort of very simplistic analysis is oh well you know he's uh, he's played with LeBron so isn't that you know isn't that system enough for him to be maximized or whatever and I don't necessarily know that his skill set was maximized playing off the ball uh, you know and, and being more of a play finisher than a guy that's actually doing more more of the creation. Well, Cle- Cleveland did set the record for all-time postseason offensive rating this year yeah I, I mean I think I think that stuff like that gets completely lost in the shuffle when people criticize redundancy or fit or even Irving's role in in Cleveland like they they posted a 120 offensive rating in the playoffs that's that's obscene <laughs> <Insane>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's just that's not right um so let's let's come full circle because I love trades <laughs> I wish I wish trades happen way more often. And I mean, we, back, we had a bunch of it feels like this offseason, a bunch of big ones. Oh, it's exciting. But the thing about trades is they're they're such great learning and teaching moments. And that journey that I went on, you know, it took years, but it started with I think the first one for me and going back to like how I ended up writing the book and and different biases and things like that. I mean, the 2004 Pistons. They traded for Rasheed Wallace. Now, what most people didn't realize at the time was that their defense went from like pretty good to in another universe. It is statistically the greatest defense of all time. It's not even normal. The teams, their defensive rating was in the eighties. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But no one knew that. So when they came into the finals, they were like a 50 something win team and a huge underdog. And here I am in LA I had just moved out here. Everybody's all shiny on the Lakers. And I'm like, the Lakers have Shaq and Kobe. 
There is no way that and Carl Malone and Gary Payton, there is no way they're losing this series. You must be crazy. And of course, when you actually go under the hood and you look at what happened after that trade, I don't think anyone would have predicted the additive or, or multiplicative effect of adding another long defender to that back line. And it just made them impossible to score against. And so things like that change your perceptive. They challenge your perception and they change your perception. Even 08 in Boston, when the Celtics got all those players, I was still walking around being like, yeah, but there's three guys in one ball. Completely oblivious to how powerful it was that Garnett was this insanely good high post passer. I was always big on Garnett, but did not understand how good of a passer he was and how his spacing and jump shooting allowed for everybody to play off each other. Ray Allen's already off ball. You just have these learning moments, the 11 heat and on and on and on. I can go back to like the sixties rambling about this, but uh. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's, you know, to, it is, it is like we, we get so when we're talking about like having to understand the context around the numbers, we, I think that's like those trades are where the, where you get, you see the importance of the context more than anything else, because Teams with relatively um, consistent rosters, you know, you can kind of you, you can be pretty good about expecting what a guy is going to do in that expected role. You know, you look at what they've done historically. Uh, you you know apply an aging curve, and you, you know you're you're probably pretty good to go if they're not changing their role drastically. Uh, and if they're on the same team with the same guys, that's probably going to be the case. But if you know when you have a big shakeup like that, uh, guys change rosters and go to a completely different environment. Um, you know, you, sometimes it it really works like gangbusters because the fit, everybody really their skill sets go together. But you only know that about their skill sets um, if you have if you've paid attention and watched how they play. Uh, and right. That's how you kind of I think have to blend the two things together. I wish I wish they did it every six months. <laughs> I wish we could just have a revol- if they had a revolving door where you just had captains and they pick teams every six months. I think I would start to use rings because you'd get. 50 or 100 or 200 different samples with different combinations, you'd start to get an idea of who the, you'd get a clearer picture of who the better players were. I would be all for that. Spoken like a, spoken like a scientist and not a, a scientist at heart. <laughs> See, there goes, there goes the fandom right out the window. Yeah, exactly. Who would you root for then? Yeah. You'd have to, you'd have to pick your favorite players. Heaven forbid. <laughs> um, but, all right, yeah, that's uh, that's. I think that's a good a good note to end it on. It, you know, the the idea of uh, you know a, a world of uh, constant uh, player movement and <laughs> trades to just to see who's the best. <laughs> yes, I just gave all of San Francisco anxiety, <laughs> which I'm okay with. I'm okay with that. Yeah, they've, it, they've it, had it pretty good. Yeah, I was gonna say that if you're if you're giving them anxiety, you know, they, they, I think they can deal with it because it's a uh, completely hypothetical and the real world that they're living in. It's going to be continue to be a dream for at least a few more years. Uh, well, thanks. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate yeah, it. Thank you so I, much uh, for coming on. And uh, thanks for, uh, you know, all the thought provoking uh, stuff that you've written over the years, because I know I've gotten a lot out of it. Um, and, you know, I'm glad that uh, we, we got a chance to talk again. Thank you, Kevin. Appreciate it.